0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Clarifying Moments of Warning and Invitation, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March eleventh, two 2007, the third Sunday in Lent. On February the 18th, Vincenzo Giovanatto went to bed after a late phone call to confirm a family lunch. He never woke up. Vince died in his sleep of natural causes at the age of 38, leaving behind a wife and three young children. I didn't know Vince, although I often go by his house when I walk our dog. We had talked a few times. He always wore a baseball cap, he never stood still when you talked to him, and he sported vanity plates on his Ford Explorer that read, Apartment Guy. He drove around the neighborhood managing his family's real estate properties. And now he's dead. I cut out his obituary from the local newspaper and keep looking at his picture, as if staring at it long enough might bring him back to life. In Luke's Gospel this week, from chapter 13, Jesus responds to two stories of sudden and premature death that sound like something from the morning newspaper. When Pilate slaughtered some Galileans during their religious rituals, instead of blaming the governor, some people blamed the victims and construed the tragedy as divine judgment. Similarly, in a bizarre accident of faith, when a tower collapsed and killed 18 people in Siloam, Some people concluded that they must have been worse sinners than the average person. Those still living suggested that in the moral calculus of the cosmos, the dead deserved to die. Perhaps at some, some subconscious level, they also thought that avoiding disaster signified God's approval of their own lives. They were wrong on both counts. No, said Jesus, don't demonize your enemy. Don't presume to invoke God's judgment on someone else. You can't purchase God's favor by projecting your own fears and anxieties onto others. And then, as he so often did, Jesus flipped the story so that its moral applied to the living rather than to the dead. Jesus compared his audience to barren fruit trees. Unlike my neighbor Vince, the Galileans, or the people of Siloam for whom time had run out, they still enjoyed a future with possible choices. If they let the tragedy speak to them, instead of using it in vain, in a vain attempt to validate their own status quo, they could rearrange the furniture of their lives, adjust their priorities, and make changes while time was still left. But the window of opportunity would not stay open forever. Mere longevity was no guarantee of a fruitful life, just as premature death could not diminish it. Sooner or later, said Jesus, the tree would be cut down. Thus, in the Old Testament this week, Isaiah asks, Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor, on what does not satisfy. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. That's spiritual deficit spending of the worst sort, accumulating depreciating assets that lose more value every day. When the clock stops and time ends, Jesus said, your life will not consist of your possessions, the wealth you hoarded, the vanity you perfected, or the power you wielded. There's a deep hunger and thirst in all of us, says the psalmist for this week, a palpable longing for human nourishment and fulfillment, that no amount of power or money, no prestigious job, nor any glamorous home in an upscale neighborhood can satisfy. Psalm 63, verse 1. Your anxieties will not disappear by winning the lottery tomorrow, nor will a new lover bring true love. For the most part, we don't live like we believe Jesus or the psalmist. For much of his young and very successful life, neither did David Quo. But then things changed. Conservative Christians like Charles Colson and James Dobson have hammered Quo for his new book by the title, Tempting Faith, in which he describes his first-hand experiences in George Bush's administration. In his first presidential campaign, Bush promised to spend $8 billion per year on faith-based initiatives. As an earnest and talented evangelical, Quo was euphoric, and so in 2001, he joined the White House staff as special assistant to Bush to help manage the new program. At long last, he thought, he had discovered a way to leverage political means to further gospel ends. But two years later, Quo resigned when he realized that the Bush administration had done what he calls, quote-unquote, less than nothing to fulfill its promises. The faith-based initiative, he discovered, was, quote, a farce, a brazen deception, smear tactics, and a mirage, end quote. The grant application process was a sham that was probably illegal and unconstitutional. Instead of using political means to further gospel ends, Quo's Bush colleagues turned this on its head and played right-wing evangelicals like a cheap violin to further their own political ends. Adding insult to injury, in private, White House staffers derided evangelicals as dupes, nuts, and crazies. Evangelicals, Quo concluded, had been deftly used and abused as a gullible goldmine of voters, and 80% of them, as we now know, voted for Bush. Nothing more and nothing less. Quote, we were good people, writes Quo, forced to run a sad charade to provide political cover to a White House that needed compassion and religion as political tools. End quote. But political exploitation was not the worst part, nor even the central point of Quo's book. Only about half of his book deals with his days in the White House. Thus, conservatives who feel betrayed by Quo have missed his main emphasis, which is one not of political kiss and tell, but of personal awakening that called for radical change. Most of Quo's book is a candid and introspective memoir about his growing conviction about the corrosive nature of political power, where manipulation, fragile egos, exaggerated self-importance, broken marriages, propagandistic lies, and partisan ideology are all the order of the day. Principled people with a conscience pay a heavy price to play that game of pragmatism. And much to his quiet credit, for Quo, the price was too high. A divorce, disillusionment, remarriage, and then surgery for a massive brain tumor at the age of 34 provoked a change of direction. So did his realization that the gospel should subvert political power and not vice versa. I let the passion of politics distract me from what matters most in life, writes Quo. Today, he's a professional bass fisherman. He says that he no longer cares about the adrenaline rush of White House power, feeling important because he was busy, how close his office was to the president, or what people think of him. Brain tumors and divorces, he says, quote, help one to clarify things. That's why I wrote this book." End quote. And now for further reflection. What have been some of the clarifying moments in your own life? Number two, why are so many clarifying moments experiences of pain, suffering, and loss? Number three, Consider Paul's words from this week's epistle, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Fourth, meditate on Jesus' words from this week's gospel in Luke chapter 13. Unless you change, you too will perish. And finally, for a book recommendation, I offer David Quo's new book by the title Tempting Faith, the Year 2006. For books this week, I review Nora Gallagher, Things Seen and Unseen, A Year Lived in Faith, New York Vintage Books, 1998 two hundred and forty one pages sometimes I just can't stand church life confessed Nora Gallagher to her friend Anne on the next to the last page of her memoir baptized at the age of fifteen Gallagher dropped out of church for about a decade returned in her late twenties then spent two more decades negotiating a lovers quarrel with church a church which she describes as, quote, familiar and a foreign planet. To cope, we are often ambivalent. I suspect that a large part of this bestseller's success has been Gallagher's candor and the chord it has struck with readers who resonate with her own church experience. Gallagher came to Trinity Episcopal Church in Santa Barbara as what she calls a, quote-unquote, tourist. But she narrates how five years later, much to her surprise, she discovered that she had stayed on as a pilgrim. Trinity Episcopal was struggling in many ways for many reasons. The sanctuary that held 400 people was mostly empty. Dysfunctions abounded. But a new interim pastor named Mark heralded a new day, and the ship began to turn around. Gallagher organizes her eight chapters according to the church liturgical year, much as Kathleen Norris did for her monastic year in her book called Cloister Walk. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, Pentecost, and Ordinary Time. Gallagher pulls back the curtain on everyday church life at Trinity Episcopal as it is lived by ordinary people. She steps forward as a lay minister, serves communion, participates in a small base community, and works at the church soup kitchen. She visits the dying, learns to love Republicans, attends meetings, and eats far too many tuna casseroles. At its best, Gallagher discovered church can be a place where, as her friend put it, quote, you can bring your whole self." Like her brother's bladder cancer, her non-believing husband, the drug death of Ephraim, one of the homeless regulars, or their pastor's announcement that he was gay, and how Trinity handled that explosive issue. Gallagher shows what it looks like to do your doubting inside the church rather than taking pot shots from outside. She describes a very imperfect human institution where honest people articulate genuine questions and differing opinions. In such a church, observed the English historian Esther DeWall, we encounter, quote, the sense of allowing the extraordinary to break in on the ordinary. If that prospect sounds attractive to you, Then read Nora Gallagher's book, Things Seen and Unseen A Year Lived in Faith. And then do what I did read her sequel called Practicing Resurrection from the year 2003. For film this week, I review a film from Singapore called Be With Me from the year 2006. Director Eric Koo mixes fact with three fictional relationships in this remarkable exploration of the human longing to love and be loved. An elderly shopkeeper tenderly cares for his wife in the hospital, then struggles with deep loneliness after she dies. Two teenage girls communicate by email and text messaging, but their gay relationship ends in tragedy. A middle-aged lecherous security guard stalks a gorgeous woman at a distance and, pathetically, finally writes her a love letter. Parallel to all of this is the real-life story of the deaf and blind Teresa Chan, a 61-year-old teacher of disabled children. Throughout the film, she she types her life story with deep reflections about love, and longing. In fact, Fate brings these four stories together in a powerful conclusion. Be With Me won awards at five film festivals. The film is mainly in English, but some Chinese with English subtitles. From Singapore, Be With Me For poetry, we've posted a poem by John F. Dean, who was born in 1943. The title of the poem is Mercy. I've taken it from the book by Stanley Hauerwas, The Cross-Shattered Christ. The poem appears in John Dean's book, Manhandling the Deity. Mercy by John F. Dean. Unholy, we sang this morning, and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked, the Christ figure hung, splayed on bloodied beams above us. Devious God, dweller in shadows, mercy on us. Immortal, cross-shattered Christ, your gentle grace down upon us. Mercy by John F. Dean. And finally, with the new month, we've posted a new music review by David Werther. David reviews three new CDs, all of which were released in the year 2006, and all of which are by Johnny Cash. First, there's Johnny Cash at San Quentin. Second, Personal File, and third, American Five, A Hundred Highways. A music review by David Werther. 2006 saw the third release of the CD Johnny Cash at San Quentin. A ten-song version was first released in 1969 when Cash had a big hit with the several Silverstein song, A Boy Named Sue. Then in 2000, an 18-song version of the February 24th, 1969 concert became available. But now, at long last, the entire concert is available with performances by the Carter family, Carl Perkins, and the Statler brothers, and includes a one-hour British documentary with concert footage. The documentary presents Johnny Cash as the link between the mythical 19th century American Western hero and the harsh reality of the San Quentin prison. The concert itself is beyond praise. It begins with Carl Perkins' classic, Blue Suede Shoes. The story goes that one of Johnny Cash's Air Force buddies used to say, don't step on my blue suede shoes when he was dressed up to go out on the town. Cash gave this line to Carl Perkins, both of whom were Sun Record artists at the time, and Perkins turned it into a famous song. Perkins is followed by the Statler brothers and then the Carter family, Mother Maybelle, June, and sisters Helen and Anita. Among others, the Carter family sings A.P. Carter's classic Wildwood Flower, And so, before Johnny Cash ever takes the stage, the audience has already heard two of the most important popular songs of the 20th century. In one case, performed by the writer himself, and in the other, with one of the members of the original Carter family. Cash's own performance begins with some of his chestnuts. Big River, I Still Miss Someone, and I Walk the Line. The response builds to a near riot when the inmates hear Cash sing his new song, San Quentin. This is followed up by the stellar cash dylan composition, Wanted Man. Soon thereafter, Cash calms things down with the comic relief of a boy named Sue and then begins to work in some gospel numbers, including his own, He Turned the Water Into Wine, a song by Carl Perkins, Daddy Sang Bass, and then the old account was settled long ago. The closing medley begins with Folsom Prison Blues and ends with the Rebel Johnny Yuma. As the contemporary Bono once put it, quote, cash does not sing to the damned, he sings with the damned, end quote. The second new CD, Personal File, is a treasure trove of 49 previously unreleased songs found in the House of Cash recording studio. This is just Cash, as one might imagine him, playing to a close group of friends. Perhaps Billy and, Billy and Ruth Graham, for example, during one of the times they stayed with Johnny and June. Most of the songs were recorded in 1973 and 74. Half of the songs are gospel numbers, some features feature spoken introductions. In the 1990s, when Rick Rubin asked Cash what he wanted to do, Cash talked about solo recordings, perhaps entitled Late and Alone. Thus, personal file reveals that Cash had a whole stash of such recordings long before he teamed up with Rick Rubin for the critically acclaimed American Recordings. The third CD, American Five, A Hundred Highways, finds Cash, as in the earlier recordings in the series, singing songs from a variety of writers. This time they include Larry Gatlin, Gordon Lightfoot, Rod McEwen, Bruce Springsteen, and others. The CD begins with Gatlin's Help Me, A Cry to God, quite fitting for Cash, mourning the death of his wife June and feeling his own strength waning. June's passing also comes readily to mind when listening to the Hank Williams number on the evening train. Cash's final compositions, like 309, and Springsteen's father on up the road, are also standouts. Perhaps the strongest recording in the collection is the traditional God's gonna cut you down, and so, in his last days, Johnny Cash is assuring us that God has the last word. Johnny Cash, with three new CDs released in 2006. Johnny Cash at San Quentin, Personal File, and American Five, 100 Highways. A review by David Werther. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 11th, 2007, the third Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.